Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. So glad to be with you guys here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Just praying as I was jumping onto this podcast that the Holy Spirit speak to you directly as we open God's Word. And again, that is why we do what we do, because we know that through God's Word, you and I are not just touched, but we are transformed when we allow the living Word of God to penetrate our hearts, to wash us clean, not just of sin, but just to help us uh, bring peace to mind and give us direction and guidance. And so I pray, my friend, as you are listening or watching the podcast, whatever you're doing, whatever you're going through, that you and I would spend this time together to grow in our knowledge, our appreciation, but also that we would grow in our love for God's word and our love for Jesus himself. And so I pray that would be the case for you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. So I want to thank you guys for tuning in. We are now in Acts chapter 9. So if you've missed any previous podcasts, you can always go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast, and we have all of my notes and all the archives and also the video. So again, if you're listening to this in audio, but you wouldn't mind jumping to YouTube or going to standstrongministries.org, clicking on podcasts, there is a a button there that you can click a, an image that can lead you to this podcast in video form that you can be watching as well. And I put up the verses up there and sometimes some graphic stuff as we just do a verse by verse teaching through whatever book that we're studying. Now, if you are new to the podcast and you've only been listening to the book of Acts as I've been uh, teaching it, I just want you to know that there is a chronological teaching in about three years, and this is how the podcast got started, actually. I was teaching it in a class setting, and as I began to investigate and study more in my own personal enrichment, it just one thing led to another. As I was talking to a lot of team members and different colleagues, and that's when Stand Strong in the Word uh, podcast was born, and we took a lot of my notes, and as I continue to study them, and we put it out there for you guys to grow in your knowledge of Scripture as I was doing the same. So take advantage of that. If Again, if you want to go through this material with a friend or a small group at church, take advantage of that. We would greatly appreciate any support that you guys give your, uh, our way, whether it be through prayer, through finances, or again, taking our uh, material and using it for your own personal enrichment, as well as maybe engaging somebody in your neighborhood or at school or at work or a church group. So as I said, we are now in Acts chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 43. The title for today's podcast is From Persecutor to Defender of the Christian Faith. So if you know your scripture and you think of a persecutor a persecutor who became a defender of the faith, of course, you're correct in thinking this is about Paul the Apostle. Now, obviously, before Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. So we have a lot to cover, so let me just dive right in as we look at the first few verses here in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly light from heaven shone around him. 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither did he eat or drink anything. All right, so a couple of things. When you, when, you, when you see right off the bat, when Luke is now introducing this next chapter, if you will, of course, he wasn't writing in chapters, but he was, when he was giving this account of the history of the early church, and he's now recording in more detail of, of Saul of Tarsus, who now becomes a convert uh, to Christianity. In verse 1, we say he's still breathing threats. It, the, the Greek terminology here is when he was making it firm, when he was putting together dire threats. So there are going to be major consequences that Saul was putting together against the church. And now remember, prior to that, and at the end of Acts chapter 7, we know that Stephen, the martyr, you know, he was put to death for his faith. And then in Acts chapter 8, we see God using uh, that martyrdom of Stephen, that is, to really cause the church to spread beyond just the scope of Jerusalem. And God was using one of the deacons who was assigned r- roughly around the same time as Stephen. You go back to Acts chapter 6, his name was Philip. And we saw the magnificent power that God had in Philip's life. Well, as things were now growing, he was approving of murder and executions. And so Saul was putting this drastic plan together. And of course, the high priest that he was seeking approval was from Caiaphas himself. And now when he was getting these letters to the synagogues at Damascus, again, this is the Roman providence of Syria. And so he was needing permission. And so Luke here continues to show Saul's opposition and increased persecution. And he's doing this, he's doing this because he's making an attempt to show the expansion of Christ's followers, even in the midst of persecution. So they thought that that was going to silence people because they saw how they were able to take the life of Stephen, despite what he had shared and how God was using him. But it didn't. It had the reversed effect. So now this is why Saul is breathing threats or making these dire threats and approving execution to try to put an end to the way quickly. Now, the Bible Knowledge Commentary writes, quote, Stephen's discourse seemed to have spurred Saul to renewed efforts to stamp out Christianity, according to Acts 8, verses 1 through 3. If the doctrine propagated by Stephen was correct, then the law was in jeopardy. So Saul, zealous as he was, went on persecuting the church. And we see this in Galatians 1, verse 13, he talks about, and going back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, end quote. So that's what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says. So after building up the evil, of course, in Saul's heart, if you go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 3, and then, of course, here, as I just read in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Luke then, what he does is he highlights this magnificent conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, in Acts chapter 9, 3 through 22. Now, notice when he goes to the high priest, it was important for Saul, who was an exceptional leader. Remember, he had given a lot of authority. We go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. He says that. We know that he was Gamaliel's brightest student. He talks about that in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, Philippians chapter 3, 4 through 14. 
So therefore, he was given access to the high priest and other high-powered people, so he would get special favors. Now, of course, he was in charge of trying to put an end to the way, so they were going to give him a lot of authority and power to do whatever he needed to do. So this term, letters to the synagogues, the letters acted as endorsements for Saul from the Sanhedrin and would give him unrestricted access to the Jews in extradition. Now, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary of the New Testament, say that uh, five times fast, says this, quote, Rome granted this level of authority to the high priest for dealing with internal matters. The precedent was set by a letter that the Roman proconsul wrote much earlier to the ruler of Egypt, says, quote, therefore, if any pestilent men have fled to you from their country, hand them over to Simon the high priest, that he may punish them according to their law. Now, that's recorded in 1 Maccabees 15, verse 21. So this right was upheld by Julius Caesar and is now applied by the high priest to stop the new pestilence that has spread all the way to the frontier land of Damascus, end quote. So you see the importance of Paul, or Saul in this matter, was was um, using these letters to to be able to give him this, this uh Authority. This again, extradition. When he was going out into different uh, areas, if you will, that he was he that he had unrestricted access, that he could do whatever he wanted. Now, the way. Remember, he was hunting down the way. Uh, the Greek is halakha, and it just means the walkings. Now, this was a label that was actually given to other groups who believe they were, of course, of the true path to God. So they're just applying it now to many of these Jewish people. We're claiming that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Messiah. You see this in Acts 16, verse 17, Acts 18, 25 through 26, Acts 19, verse 9, and Acts chapter 22, verse 4, and Acts chapter 24, verse 14. So you see the way this label being used throughout the book of Acts. Now, Saul, remember, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he was far more advanced than any one of his peers in the Talmud. Again, he mentions this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. Again, this isn't, this isn't Paul bragging. This is him just describing the type of uh, Jewish uh, person he was or Hebrew or Pharisee that he was. So we know that um, he, was, he would have been in, in, enraged by these groups of people who were saying to people like him, you're wrong, you missed the Messiah. So when he goes on his way and he's approaching Damascus, now he leaves Jerusalem. So the journey from Jerusalem to to Damascus, remember, it was a massive city with broad commercial trade. So this was about 140 miles. And so it would take up to a week for Saul to travel this distance. And so many Hellenist Jews who converted to Christ, remember, they fled from Jerusalem to Damascus to escape persecution. So they, they have records of that. And so this is one reason why when he was breathing threats down against the way that he's tracking where they went after the martyrdom of Stephen. So Saul's headed there to flatten the growth of Christianity in the city and to prevent it from spreading into Syria, Mesopotamia, Anatolia, Persia, and Arabia. Now, this phrase here that we're told, though, the light from heaven Paul would later refer to this as a, quote, revelation from Jesus Christ, Galatians 1, verse 12. When, he, when, when Luke is recording this light from heaven, it's talking about his conversion story that happened because of the revelation that he had of Jesus Christ personally. 
Now, when this occurs, of course, we're told in verse 4 that he falls to the ground because he hears the voice. And notice what Jesus says to him in posing a question, that is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, remember, if you go back in the Old Testament, there are these things that are known as theophanies. They are appearances of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, whether it be an angel of the Lord or in different cases. Now, these theophanies were very common in the Old Testament, and they would often follow with a divine call. So when they have an appearance from a theophany, whether it be Moses' member in Exodus chapter 3 or Isaiah in chapter 6 or Ezekiel in chapter 1, there was always a divine call to follow. Now, if you notice here, the same applies to Paul in a very special way. Paul would later recall his conversion story in Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 21, and also in Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 29. And what he would do is he would mention this later to the Corinthians when he described the risen Christ in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, that appeared to him. So this had, of course, a dramatic effect, as you can imagine, on him. Now, when Jesus poses this question, notice in verse 5, who are you, Lord? That's a divine title that he is giving to Jesus. And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Saul recognizes the bright light and the voice to be God, but he doesn't fully understand what is going on. So when Jesus says, I am Jesus, Jesus identifies himself as God. And he asks Saul, Saul, I am God. You've, you've rejected that. You've denied that. What you think is following the law and that what you're doing is honorable to God, but it isn't because I am God and you're persecuting me as you persecute my followers. So this question would have revealed to Saul that his motives and his purposes were sinful, that he was betraying God in the process, and yet this whole time he thought that he was honoring God and what he was doing, which is confirmation to Gamaliel's recent concern he presented to the Sanhedrin regarding Christ and his followers. Remember, you go back to Acts chapter 5, verse 38 through 40. Gamaliel himself said, if this is of God, then we can't withstand it. But if it isn't, we will put it into it, or it would just go to the wayside like a lot of these other movements have done. So again, I believe at this point in time, Saul was gathering that kind of information, whether or not this was of God or not. But then in verse 6, it says, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So despite the fear... In the blindness that was crippling Saul, he acts in obedience to Jesus' command to continue into Damascus. That shows the obedience that he had. It shows that he was willing to, despite what he was going through, he was willing to do what Jesus Christ had put forth for him to do. And then verse 7 says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but they saw no one. So the representatives of the Sanhedrin, whoever they were that were with uh, Saul of Tarsus, they were not able to see Jesus because the divine encounter was only for Saul to see. Isn't that significant? That's how personal this was. They knew something significant was happening. They were blinded by what was happening, but they could not receive any other information beyond that other than what Saul received for himself because it was Jesus directly speaking to him. So it says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So blinding Saul debilitated him to the point where he couldn't continue any further. 
causing him to have to wait for Ananias to come and heal him. But of course, he didn't know that at the time. And Saul's blindness, again, it's also significant for us to point out physically he was blind, but it also symbolizes the spiritual blindness that he was undergoing in his life. Now, it says here that according to Luke, that he neither ate nor drank anything. So you could imagine the shock, the despair, the depression that wore on Saul. This also could be an indication that Saul maybe was choosing to fast during this time as he was seeking God in the process of him repenting. You see this in Esther chapter 4, verse 16. So Saul goes from a high-powered man, right, determined to have people murdered uh, to being broken and scared and in need of healing. So that is amazing transformation to go from Saul of Tarsus to eventually Paul the Apostle to go from this arrogant, strong-willed, sophisticated man led by the power of the Sanhedrin to realizing what he's doing is sinning against God and he's broken and he's blinded. Now we're told in Acts chapter 9 verses 10 through 19 that Ananias comes to assist Saul. It says here in verse 10, now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And there he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is chosen. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you have come, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So in this phrase that we see in verse 10, now there was a disciple named Damask, uh, uh, Damascus named Ananias. His name literally means the Lord is gracious. Isn't that awesome? So God sends a servant of his whose name means gracious to extend grace to a man who is undeserving of it. But that's the gospel, isn't it, my friends? So when, when, when Ananias hears the Lord speak to him, notice he says, like Samuel, here I am, Lord. Now, the Greek idiom of Ananias' response to the voice of God matches with many Old Testament saints. You go back to Genesis 22, verse 11, Exodus 3, verse 4. You look at 1 Samuel, as I mentioned, with Samuel himself, who became one of the greatest prophet priests to ever live. Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 8. Now, in Acts chapter 22, verse 12, Paul described Ananias as a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews. So this is what's also amazing because in Saul's mind, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who has access to Caiaphas himself, who's a wealthy Jewish leader with a, who's also a Roman citizen, he's well-respected by the elite. 
but that's in the flesh. A man who was really highly respected, who was really following the law, who was a true disciple of Jesus, of God that is, was Ananias. So see, oftentimes, my friends, we can get confused or sucked into the life of someone like Saul, when in fact we need to be looking at someone like Ananias. Now, when the Lord told him to rise and go to the street called Straight, that's the main east-west thoroughfare. So this was a, if you think about in your city, wherever you live, like a main intersection, way to go from north to south, if you will. So this was a very common area where he was able to identify in his area. Now, remember, Jesus takes the top persecutor of the early church, and he calls him to be his key apostle to take the gospel to the known world. As God is using, as we're going to see people like Barnabas, he's going to reappear to help minister to Saul. Or in this case right now, he's using Ananias. God is using these people to do their part. God was using Philip. And then he goes off to another place. We don't hear from him ever again. But then God uses Stephen for a while, and then he is murdered. He's martyred for his faith. But God is now going to take someone like Saul and through the hands and feet in obedience of someone like Ananias, he's going to respond. But notice in verse 13, before Ananias goes, as he's having this conversation with the Lord, notice he says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. And again, notice he's heard about these letters. He's heard about this access that he has, unrestricted access that is, to do certain things. So although Ananias responds in obedience to God, he nonetheless voices some doubt and concern about Saul's reputation. If I may, let me pause before we go any further, and just as a self-application, if you will, to your life. There are times, my friends, as we're talking to the Lord intimately, and we express our concern, that's okay. That's okay. You know God is speaking. You know God is moving. You acknowledge that fact. But as a human being, as a child, you can also acknowledge you're going through and how you are struggling, if you will, through the difficulty of what it's going to take for you to follow through with what God says. Just be real with that. That's what Ananias was doing here. Now, notice when he says he has authority from the chief priest, again, as I mentioned before, word had already spread. We don't know how, but word had already gone out about Saul's intent to arrest and execute Christ's followers in Damascus. However, it was probably a comforting fact, right, to Ananias, that God had intervened, which is another thing for you and I to point out. You know, there's a lot of times when we hear a lot of scary things that take place, we have to be reminded that God is in control. Saul had this plan. Word gets out that he's going to do this, and it's not going to be good. But Jesus intervenes. And the amazing thing is, Saul responds and he gets saved. Now notice in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go though for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. So Ananias, you have no idea what this man's going to do for me. The Lord's commission to Saul would be primarily member to the Gentile people. However, the amazing thing about Paul the Apostle's ministry to come was that it's going to be the most extensive across ethnic groups and cultures ever because he fit the bill. He fit the bill. God was able to take what he had put Saul through to become Paul the Apostle to reach the world. Because if you think about it, what other Christian has had more impact 
in the Christian faith than Paul the Apostle. No one. Notice in verse 16, for I will show him how much suffer for my name's sake. Now, this is amazing because I don't know if you've ever done a personal study into the life of, of Paul for one, but even more specific, have you looked at scripture to see how often Paul refers to how he suffered? Now, he was not complaining. He's just stating the facts of what he endured because there are many times throughout the letters, Paul talks about the trials he faced as an apostle. He goes in Acts chapter 20, 23 through 24 to, to in greater detail about that. Acts 21, verse 11, Acts 26, verse 17, Second King, or excuse me, Second Chronicles 11, 23 through 27, Philippians chapter 1, 12 through 14. And then he again says, you know, that, that I'm a suffering member and, and Christ's sufferings in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Colossians 1, verse 24. So he would indeed suffer greatly for the name of Christ and later be beheaded in the early 80-60-some time frame before 80-65. Some people put it at 80-66. But the point is, is that we know that eventually Paul the Apostle, his life ends. He's beheaded because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. So, of course, Ananias, he does. He obeys and he goes and he, he, he comes to Saul and says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road um, has also appeared to me. So Ananias was a Christian leader in Damascus and would have been a person who either was arrested or perhaps even killed by Saul, if you think about that. It kind of alluded to in Acts chapter 22, verse 12. And yet, again, this is the gospel. Jesus uses Ananias to love and care for Saul as a family member. So if you think about it, Saul's intent was to put an end to these people, and yet it is God who uses people like Ananias to love him. This is a true testimony, my friends, of loving your enemies. And this is what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, 27 through 36. So he says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you. So Paul would later testify that his vision of Jesus, remember, on the road to Damascus, met the qualification to be an apostle. Remember, because he didn't have what the other apostles had, where they walked with Jesus for three plus years. But in his case, this vision of Jesus, this was a physical appearance, and this was a qualification to make him an apostle in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. So that's important to note because of him being an apostle, he met that qualification. It was that specific and real, that physical appearance that he had. And then we're told here in Acts chapter 9, verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So Jesus gives Ananias the power, notice, to heal Saul's blindness. And Saul was not only healed physically, but he was also restored spiritually. So he physically is back to great health, but he's now feeling something spiritually that he had been trying to achieve by being an observer in the law all of his life. Now, this phrase baptized, perhaps Saul was baptized in the Barada River that stretched through the city of Damascus. We don't know, but more than likely that if he was baptized by Ananias, they went to the Barada River. So now let's look at the third point here in our passage where Saul declares Jesus is the son of God as we continue to see this progression take place in his life. 
verses 19 through 22 says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So now notice this when it says he immediately proclaimed. This means publicly announced. So this was a very quick, when he got saved and he was baptized by Ananias, he came out of that, he publicly came out and began to announce what God had done in his life and saying that Jesus is the son of God. Now this demonstrates the boldness and the readiness of Saul to publicly announce Jesus Christ as the son of God. Now remember to date, this would have been the most shocking conversion of the way the Jews and the religious leaders witnessed. At this point, they didn't see someone at this level to come to faith. Now, this phrase, he is the son of God, taking his exhaustive training of Judaism and with the illumination, that is the power and the, the insight that the Holy Spirit gave him according to 1, Kings chap- or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, Saul is quickly uh, able to make the case Jesus is the Messiah. Now, this phrase, Son of God, this is the only occurrence, by the way, in the book of Acts, and it points to Saul's advanced teaching of Jesus in the Jewish scriptures. Listen to what the NIV, uh, or excuse me, the, the IVP New Testament commentary series says, quote, only here, and, at, and in also in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, which is quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, does Saul proclaim Jesus as Son of God? Within a messianic and monotheistic framework, this title is like son of man compared to Acts chapter 7 and verse 56. For Jews, son of God both conceals and reveals who Jesus is. For them, it may be nothing more than a messianic title. Yet when understood literally, it implies participation in the divine nature, having a unique relationship and fellowship with God the Father. Saul has just seen Jesus in all of his glory as the risen and exalted Lord, makes this the theme of his first sermons, end quote. So that's important that we kind of skip by that when in fact the phrase he was using was very sophisticated. That already shows you he was taking the knowledge that he had of the Jewish scriptures. And he was within a, in a few days. And I believe as he was journeying, people like Saul, <clears throat> who was a Pharisee, had access to a lot of scrolls. Of course, a lot of it was memorized, had the Talmud, the Mishnah, things like that. And he was just searching, devouring all this kind of stuff and trying to pinpoint Jesus in these things. And so he was able to rattle them off very quickly like no one had ever seen. Peter, Philip, Stephen, they weren't doing what Paul was able to do immediately. And this we're told in verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed. So they were stunned by saying, isn't this the man who's bringing havoc to uh, Jerusalem. Now, of course, Luke here in verses in verse 21, he condenses the crowd's reaction to hearing of Saul's conversion and message. So he's not taking light of it. It's just space, right? So you can imagine so many people were blown away. And then we're told in verse 22 that Paul, or excuse me, Saul, he increased all the more in strength. That literally in Greek means that he developed his apologetic skills. 
He was learning how to defend the faith now by taking the Jewish scriptures, and it confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So Saul went from being a zealous persecutor of the way, which we saw in Acts chapter 8, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. He mentions that in 1 Kings. Uh, I always keep saying, by the way, 1 Kings instead of 1 Corinthians. I apologize for that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, and also 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, how he was a zealous persecutor. He mentions that multiple times. But then he becomes a passionate defender of the gospel. So before I look at the fourth point in Acts chapter 9, I do want to say this, my friend, already as we're just talking about this magnificent transformation that took place in Saul's life. If you have lived a sinful life, some of you may be listening have been an, an adulterer, had an affair on your spouse, or you've lived a life of prostitution, or you uh, had several abortions in the past or helped people have abortions, or you perform them, or whatever the case may be. But, but you said, Jay, there's no way the life that I've lived, the things, the evil things that I've done, I don't see how God can forgive me. Look at the story of Saul of Tarsus. Now, if I remember at the end of the podcast, I want to bring us full circle on that and tell you a powerful story that occurred when I was preaching in jail and how I used this, the story of Paul's conversion. So now let's go to the fourth point, though. The Jews plot to kill Saul in Acts chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, where it says here, well, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So here we see now that God is protecting Saul. Because immediately having this high-powered individual who turns against the Sanhedrin, if you will, he was the one that was the savior. He was supposed to be the savior. He was supposed to put an end to all this. And yet he's now converted. So they have to put an end to this guy. Like the mob in the sense, they have to, they have to whack him so that he doesn't talk. Because notice in verse 25, but his disciples, meaning his converts, his followers, so already we have here information within a short span of time that Saul is making converts of the faith. So it's reasonable to assume that at this point of Luke's account, Saul went to Arabia when he fled. Now, this is according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, this phrase here says, When many days had passed, we believe when we study these accounts of Paul, spent three years in Arabia. Now, when he says uh, their plot became known, at the time of Saul's radical conversion, Eratos IV, who ruled from 9 BC to AD 40, he was the king of the Nabataeans. He was in power, and his influence may have been used with the governor of Damascus in an attempt to capture and kill Saul. Remember, Saul said in, uh, or Paul later said in Second. Uh, Corinthians 11, verse 32, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. 
So these are accounts that we see that Paul put together when they're trying to put it in, but he finds out about it. We don't know to what extent how he was able to, but I believe, of course, it was a divine act of God to protect him. He flees. So now, just like when God brought Ananias, when he was, was uh, believing, uh, you know, maybe he wasn't fully saved at this point when he still had the scales. Many of us believe that the point in which Ananias comes to him, engages him, tells him about the gospel, just like when he literally, the scales fell off, we also believe spiritually he was transformed and then therefore he was baptized as a result. Now, at this point in time, a few years into his Christian walk, who does God bring in his life? He brings in Barnabas. So we're told here now in verse 26 through 31, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him, to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's a powerful little brief explanation by Luke. Now, let's break it down uh, in, in these verses. Notice Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, that when he came to Jerusalem, that he met Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus. So it says when he had come to Jerusalem, so we're believing that's when he encountered them. He met some of them. Now it says afraid of him. The disciples, remember, were afraid of Saul's conversion, and they thought that was a ploy, a tactic, if you will, to infiltrate their groups and to kill them off. So a lot of people were, were keeping their distance, if you will, from Saul. But Barnabas, notice, steps in, and he took him and he brought him to the apostles. Now, remember, Barnabas was the one who sold his land and donated to the church in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. And now he acts as a mediator and also an encourager for Saul and the apostles. I always put it like this. Paul was the defender. Barnabas was the encourager. And you need both in ministry, right? A.T. Robinson writes, quote, Barnabas saw the situation and took Saul to himself and listened to his story and believed it. It is to the credit of Barnabas that he had the insight and the courage to stand by Saul at the crucial moment in his life when the evidence seemed to be against him, end quote. That is so true. And so what happened in verse 28, they went in and out among them in Jerusalem. So he's given access. He starts fellowshipping with Christians and he's preaching boldly the name of the Lord. So, pro so, so Saul probably stayed with his sister, according to Acts chapter 23, verse 16. And here he was relying on Barnabas to help ease the apostles' concern and other disciples about his past. So can you imagine uh, just the personal conversations that Saul was having with not just the um, inner circle of leaders in Jerusalem, but just people in general. But notice he was preaching boldly. This probably stunned so many of the Jews to actually come here, uh, a former Pharisee preaching about Jesus being the Messiah. Now, if you've ever gone to hear somebody who has a radical story, like I remember hearing people who or a terrorist or somebody who was a mobster 
or somebody who lived a, a past life of, of a lot of sin and then they got radically saved. And so they wrote a book or something. And it's just, it's just always a beautiful thing to hear the grace of God and, and, and the impact that God has in so many people's stories, lives. Cause you look at a lot of these people and you're thinking they're a lost cause. There's no way that God can reach them when in fact he does. Well, that's what was blowing people's mind. They're saying, this is a man who we thought was holy and pious and wealthy and powerful. And yet it was nothing because I was all done in the flesh. But notice in verse 29, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now remember, here we go. The Hellenists were very influential. And these were the people that, that Stephen himself, if you go back to Acts chapter 6 and later in Acts chapter 7, that, that helped lead him to, to death, these Greek-speaking Jews. But we see that Saul's encountering them. And as a result, again, they want to seek to kill him. So now another group of people want to kill Saul as he's debating these Hellenists. So his life was in danger as, as Stephen's life was in danger. And of course, later we know that they took the life of Stephen. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now this is according to Galatians chapter one, verse 21. So now this is important to note and it's, and it can kind of get a little confusing. This will be 10 years at this point that we're taking place now. Be 10 years from this point until Paul begins his first missionary journey, which we'll see in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. So there's a few years after Paul is saved. He goes to Jerusalem. He's meeting the apostles. Barnabas comes to assist him. He's preaching boldly the gospel to the Hellenists, uh, uh, Greek-speaking Jews, that is. And, but then because they want to kill him, they send him off to Caesarea and then from there to Tarsus. Now remember, Caesarea was the capital of the Roman province of Judea. Tarsus, of course, was Saul's birthplace. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, this is important. Just give you a quick uh, summary for some of you who like uh, this sort of information. Here's a summary of Paul's journeys in Acts chapter 9. So remember, in verses 1 and 2, he goes to Jerusalem. But then in, from Jerusalem, he goes to Damascus from, from verses 3 through 22. <clears throat> then he goes to Arabia in Galatians 1.17. Then to, to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, 23 through 25, according to Galatians 1, 17, and 2 Corinthians 11, 32 through 33. Then Jerusalem in Acts 9, 26 and 29, Galatians 1, 18 through 20. Number six, Caesarea in Acts 9, 30, and Tarsus, according to verse 30 of Acts chapter 9, and also according to Galatians chapter 1, 21 through 24. So there's a lot of travel that took place and the early conversion story of Paul. And, and for many reasons, it was not just, uh, you know, be, to, to reach people and to preach the gospel, but also to protect him and also to help him continue to grow and do the work that God had called him to do. And then verse 31 says, so the church, that's the Greek ekklesia, throughout all Judea and Gal, uh, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. So throughout the book, Luke provides growth markers of the church. This is important for us to, to take a snapshot. And he said this in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Acts chapter 4, 32 through 35. Acts chapter 5, 12 through 16. And then again in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And then of course here in Acts chapter 9, verse 31 to always remind the reader, despite what Satan was attempting to do, despite the hostility, despite the opposition, despite the threats to, to kill somebody, there was peace. There are people who are walking in the fear of the Lord. 
there was the power and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and people were growing in their faith and more converts were coming to faith. That is important because although uh, you saw the, the rise of power, because remember uh, Tiberius died in Caligula and the new emperor of Rome sought to erect a statue of himself in Jerusalem. And, and again, what that causes a lot of Jewish leaders to focus much of their attention on what was happening now with the Romans and a little bit less on the church. And as a result of that, they were able to kind of expand. And you see that in moments of time in history. So whether they're being persecuted, they're growing. And when the persecution is not as intense, they're growing. Point is, my friend, the gospel is not chained. God is not limited to our faith. God moves in his creation in a powerful way. So as we are now encountering the life of Paul, who's going to become the apostle that we know him to be, historically speaking, notice what Luke does now is he goes back and he brings us uh, a story about Peter. So this is our sixth point. Peter heals Aeneas, who's a paralytic, in verses 32 through 35. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So pause. Notice he's not <clears throat> giving us great detail, just letting us know there was a lot of work that Peter had been doing, going here and there. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So this Lydda, this city here, it's, it's a city mainly uh, made up of Jews. And it was 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And so he, he learns of the whereabouts of a certain man. So we don't know. Luke doesn't go in great detail. But it, it kind of implies that Peter heard about this man. So he's making an effort to go, to go be with him. So Ananias, remember, is a Jewish man with a Greek name, though, which is common in those times. Seems like he's a follower of Christ. And again, going back to maybe one of the home churches had mentioned it to Peter. And so he's making an effort to go see this man. Uh, but he's unable to, of course, visit Peter because of his condition. So Peter decides to come to, to Lydda. And it says here that he found a certain man. So it's actually Peter who visits Ananias. And he, he heals him of his paralysis. So there was something wrong. Maybe he had tuberculosis, uh, some kind of compressing of the spinal cord. Remember, Luke was a physician. So the way he describes it, uh, maybe he was injured or maybe he had a disease like tuberculosis. But whatever the case was, he had been sick again in this condition uh, for years. I think the scripture said what was eight years. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed meaning prepare yourself. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, that was the area around Joppa and, and Lydda, saw him and they turned to the Lord. So once again, as, we're, as we saw in Acts chapter three with, 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 Anna, with Peter's faith, with a man who was outside uh, the temple, uh, you see Peter's faith again here uh, that it's not in his own abilities. It's in his faith in the powerful name of Jesus. And a miracle was similar that Jesus did that was similar, I think, that really resonated with Peter. Remember, if you go back to Luke chapter 5, verse 24, 25, when he healed a paralytic, and here Peter is healing a paralytic. 
And so that's the amazing thing is when you actually see disciples doing what their masters trained them to do, and they have faith in how they were trained, and that's clearly the case with Peter. Now, these residents uh, of Lydda and Sharon, killing Ananias causes many in the coastal region to come to Christ. So even though these are brief little stories, um, and again, we're going to see the next chapter, the last main story in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Peter, and then that's it, and it goes now to full time into the life of Paul. But even though this is a brief account, Peter's ministry, his itinerant ministry in this region opens the doors to the gospel to spread into Egypt, into Syria, and up the plain of Sharon. This was a strategic spot that exploded with growth after King Herod built Caesarea and developed a network of roads leading to many cities. So geographically, again, we just read this and move on, but this is a powerful way why Peter's there and God's using him to continue to spread the gospel into different parts of the world, which is one of the reasons why we always think, well, man, how did the gospel reach the known world in 30 short years? Well, this is one just add up city after city in, the, in these strategic pockets. And that's not the only healing. Notice also this in verse 36 through 43, where number seven, Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. So now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she came, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows, or excuse me, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. And he knelt down and he prayed and turning to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So this is the last account that we see here in Acts chapter nine. And so notice Joppa, also known as Jaffa, it was an important Roman port city. It was 11 miles from Lydda. And we're told of, a, of another disciple. So remember, Aeneas, was, it seemed like he was a follower of Jesus. Now, Tabitha was a, a disciple, which was translated Dorcas, which is the Greek word gazil. And she was full of good works. She did great things in the community. She was a very kind and generous woman, we're told, by Luke, who was well-loved. And she was regarded by the people. Uh, where she lived. And so when she died, of course, people were mourning and they were saddened by this whole thing. And so since Lydda, we're told in verse 38, was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there, and of course the, the, the hearing of, of Aeneas being healed, they sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Isn't it funny? Because later we're going to see many men come from Cornelius's house to find Peter. And I believe this is the beginning of God showing Peter I'm going to be sending a lot of random people your way and you need to obey me because there are going to be great needs for you to meet. So they told him to come at once. So the women member were told they had washed Tabitha's body. And remember, it was customary to bury the body before sunset. That's, that's hence the, the, the sense of urgency they were telling Peter. They weren't trying to be rude. 
but they're just like, you know, sharing with him the situation that was taking place. Now, remember, Lydda was near Joppa, so it would have been a about a four to five hour trip for Peter to get there. Well, again, which was a lot for people to do in one day, especially when it was it was it was sudden. And so they're showing when he gets there, uh, the, you know, he rises, goes in obedience, and they're showing all these great, you know, clothes fitting undergarment stuff that she had made that Dorcas or, or you know Tabitha had made, and um, and they're 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 crying. They're, they're weeping over her. So remember, Jewish piety was a huge part of the culture. And the scene of widows mourning the loss of Tabitha, again, speaks to the fondness that they had about her. But Peter puts them aside. He puts them out, just like, again, remember when Jesus had done that. And the, and, and the amazing thing is this, the, the, this miracle that Peter does is reminiscent of one, of Elijah, when he, when he raised the boy from the dead in 1 Kings 17, verse 19. And also Jesus, remember when Jesus raised the girl from the dead in Luke chapter 8, 40, 49 through 56. And he says to this girl, when he puts people out of the room, he says, Tabitha, arise. Now, this would have sounded very similar. This is interesting. This would have sounded very similar in Aramaic to when Jesus said in Mark chapter 5, verse 41, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. Now, this is important because Luke records the different miracles Peter was instrumental in. When you go back to Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, Acts chapter 5, 12 through 16, here in Acts chapter 9, 32 through 35, it points out to how God was using people like Peter to spread the gospel. But in the process, how they loved and, and, and helped people where they can. Now, of course, wouldn't it be great when you have somebody who can, you know, you're sick and somebody can heal you, you're paralyzed, somebody can heal you, you're dying of cancer, somebody could just quickly heal you. But he wasn't a miracle worker in that sense. Notice when he gave um, her his hand and raised her up, then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So Peter doesn't touch Tabitha till after she is raised from the dead to remain, I believe, ceremonially clean, according to Leviticus 21 and Numbers 5, verse 2. And this is important because... A lot of people think that they completely threw out the law. There were still practices as a Christ follower that they did out of respect to their social customs, their social structures. And so he doesn't touch her until she comes alive again. And I also do believe in a way is that only Jesus has that touch. And so it was a way where he doesn't touch thinking, okay, I'm going to touch her to heal her, but I'm also not going to touch her to be, to, so I don't, I'm not ceremonially unclean. And then he touches her when she comes alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So the news about Aeneas, news about Tabitha, they spread throughout the region, causing many to put their trust in Jesus. So this is amazing because after Peter encounters Saul of Tarsus, that God takes one of the greatest persecutors of the way, and he now becomes a defender of the faith. And then he goes his separate ways to do the ministry that God had called him to continue to do, to continue to heal people, continue to preach the gospel. Amazing things are happening. But then we're told uh, at the very end of this chapter that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, in the next podcast, we'll go into greater detail about this situation and who this person is. But just real briefly, Simon uh, here what we can allude to was in the business of dealing with dead carcasses and turning animal hides into leather. So according to Jewish law, when you look at Leviticus 5 verse 2 and Leviticus 11 verse 31, Peter would be unclean living with Simon and also be despised by the Jews. So what's an interesting is that 
He didn't touch Tabitha, maybe, perhaps, because he didn't want to be uh, ceremonially unclean. But then he goes to stay with, with Simon the Tanner. I believe, here's the point, that God was preparing Peter to understand more fully what holiness and equality is all about with Tabitha and soon at the home of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 23. The Asbury Bible Commentary says, quote, Both of Peter's miracles witness to the resurrection. Aeneas is raised from a bed of para- uh, paralysis, and Tabitha or Dorcas from a bed of death. Luke takes no time to detail Peter's preaching and teaching. The accounts are given in brief capsule form simply to indicate that the witness of the resurrection and the practical ministry of the apostles is a source of belief, end quote. Now, as I said before, the amazing story of someone like Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul the Apostle. Years ago, when, when you and I uh, in this podcast, just to kind of give it on a high note, uh, and, and, and also in a practical uh, sense, I was ministering or attempting to try to minister to a man who had committed murder. And whatever I was trying to do was not reaching him. And so I remember writing in great detail the story of the Apostle Paul and showing him in Scripture how he referred to himself as a murderer, as an insolent man. And I let this man know on death row, if God can save, because that was his biggest uh, holdup, how can God save someone like me after, after I killed three people? But if God can save someone like Paul, God can save you. I can save anyone. And I gave him a Bible and, and he came to Christ. Now, of course, that was years ago. I don't know where, he, where he's at today, but I believe his, his uh, conversion story was genuine. He, he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He took it that seriously. That's the power when we look at a story like Paul's. And so, my friend, as we looked at this passage, I pray that this impacts you. Pray that it gives you great focus not to underestimate your testimony. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's important for us to share our testimonies. Don't think if you have grew up in a Christian home all these years that you don't have anything important to say. You don't have to go out and live these horrible lives with drugs and sex and stuff like that to have a powerful story to share with people. We need to be thankful for the grace of God in our lives, and so I don't want you to ever forget that. And So I pray that as we looked at the story of Saul, who becomes Paul, becomes who who goes from a persecutor to a defender that you and I are reminded that God can change anyone's life and that through people like Ananias and through people like Barnabas God wants to use you and me to impact the lives of other people so be sensitive to that so thank you guys for watching and until next time keep standing strong my friends for more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries visit us at standstrongministries.org thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.